Hello and welcome to Silver Age, Silver Screen, a podcast where we watch, discuss, and review sci-fi, cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. And you know what, Riley? You know what it is now? Like, the date, I mean? It's like Easter, except not. I I don't know when Easter is. I think it's a few weeks after this. No one ever knows when Easter is. Yeah, I think it's like a week or a little less than a week after this episode airs. What determines when Easter is? Do you know? It's whenever uh, whenever Lent is over. Right. Because Easter is I think a Easter Christian is like holiday. The first Sunday after Lent, and Lent is started by, I don't know what starts Lent, but it's a certain duration. It's complicated. And anyway, because it's Easter, we're doing Harry Potter and the, uh, the second one. The Chamber of Secrets is its name. Harry Potter 2. Because, I mean, Thanksgiving and Easter are opposites, right? Am I the only one who thinks that? Mm, no. I like, mean, they're, not, not necessarily. They're about six months apart, or... Are they? Okay, four. One's in spring, one's in fall. I don't know. Personally, I always think of them as opposites because on Thanksgiving, my family goes up to visit our aunt. On Easter, our aunt comes to visit us. I don't know. Point is, we're doing another Harry Potter movie. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And this time, this Harry Potter movie only has one title and not a thousand. Yeah, we got into it last time with Harry Potter and the Slatherer's Stone. And honestly... A lot of what we said about the first Harry Potter movie applies to this one. The first two were both directed by Chris Columbus. They're very similar in structure, in feel, and how they're shot. It's deja vu. Yeah, Yeah, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels. Some things that I thought were weaker than the first one, and some things that I thought had improved on the first one. Oh, and speaking of things we talked about in our last Harry Potter review, again, on this show, when we review a work, that does not mean we are condoning the actions of anyone involved in the production. Like, it's relevant for every film we do, but it's especially up for a Harry Potter movie, because, I mean, it was directed by Chris Columbus, but it's based off a book written by J.K. Rowling, who sucks. She really, really sucks. She's dedicated the last couple years of her life to campaigning to strip civil rights from trans people. J.K. Rowling's awful. Right. And us saying that, hey, we think the production design in this movie is good, that should never be taken as us saying J.K. Rowling's a good person or we agree with any of the terrible shit she said about trans people, you know? Right. J.K. Rowling's controversial and politically incorrect statements have absolutely nothing to do with our opinions of this movie. We are judging this as a film specifically, but we do think it is a good thing to address the elephant in the room and address the fact that we don't condone the actions and opinions of the author of the novels. Yeah, yeah, and this applies on previous reviews. Like, we've praised Jim Carrey's acting. I'm pretty sure he's like a hardcore anti-vaxxer, which is eh. Uh, We've said that we like the Avengers movies, Definitely don't like Josh Whedon. Like, oh yeah. The thing with the film, like hundreds of people work on these movies, and that's why I feel like we should look at it as a whole rather than focusing on something that anyone who worked on it did. We are separating the art from the artist. Mm-hmm. 
The personal lives of the people involved in the production of this are completely irrelevant to the final product of the film. We are judging this as a film and not as anything that has to do with a controversial figure behind the scenes. So without further ado, let's jump into this film. It opens up with Harry back at the Dursleys, which, side note, so Dumbledore just threw Harry back into that abusive home with no means to defend himself. Like, that's kind of messed up. Well, that's the other thing about all of the movies and books and stuff. They always begin with him back at the Dursleys, you know? Except for the sixth one, I believe. And it's like, A, they've abused him his entire life. They openly hate him. He always goes back to live with them for the summer. Like, what the fuck? If my uncle put bars on my window, and then I dropped him out of that window after escaping against his will, I don't know, I I might want to stay with the Weasleys for a little while, you know? (laughs) I might not want to go back to to that place. And... I know, Harry Potter fans, I know, I've read the books, I know that it's eventually explained that because of the Lily Potter sacrificer thing, Harry is protected while he's at the Dursleys. But I mean, welfare checks, like, just check in every once in a while, like, hey, are you treating Harry well? Oh no, you barred up his windows so he can't escape. Yeah, uh, mm, yeah. We're going to have Hagrid turn you into pigs again because that's not okay. But whatever. In a realistic world, when you have a kid, a child who has been profoundly abused by his aunt and uncle like this, and then he, like, gets this magical power, there would be some concern as to the mental stability of that child and what he would end up doing to that family. Just in a realistic world, not in Harry Potter, obviously, but in a realistic world, it's like Hagrid shows up like, hey, Harry, I'm here to take you to Platform 9 and 3. Oh, my God! And he just sees the Dursleys just dead. If Harry went Voldemort on the Dursleys, I wouldn't judge him. Yeah. I mean, a little, but whatever. I don't know. I I, I get this is for kids. Like, the books, the movies, it's like it's for kids and families. But, like, there's some really bizarre implications of what the outcomes of certain situations, especially in this movie, that I will get into later. But, I don't know, it's just like, it it, it sets up such weird situations where it's like, okay, in a realistic world, that would be completely different, you know? Yeah. So, the Dursleys, a big client's coming over to their house to have dinner with them, and Vernon tells Harry, stay in your room and be quiet because we hate you. And Harry goes to his room, and he finds this weird, short little, half-naked elf man named Dobby, who, side note, this film came out in 2002, and, I mean, it doesn't hold up 100%, but the CG on Dobby is really, really good for its era. Yes, that was one of the things that I thought very much improved from the first one. You know, we talked about it in the first one. There was a lot of the green screen and the CGI just did not hold up at all. Like that cave troll scene in the bathroom. I was like, wow, that is dated CGI. But no, it's like I felt overall, like you said, it's not the greatest. But I did think that the CGI and the green screen were much improved on this film. Yeah, Dobby looks great. And he's played by Toby Jones. Yeah, wait, pausing for a second so I can look up who Toby Jones is. He played Arnim Zola in Captain America, the first Avenger. Wait, hold on, hold on. Stop. That's who plays Dobby? He's played by, like, freaking Zola from Captain America? Yeah. Okay, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's just a fact. 
Huh. Well, anyway, what is Dobby? Dobby is a house elf. And shit, let's go to the biggest sticking point with this movie. House elves are slaves. Wizards have slaves. It's 1990 and slavery is legal in England. Oh, oh, oh God. And it's not like presented. Well, like Dobby is horribly mistreated. Like he's been beat so much that he just beats himself whenever he thinks anything negative about his owners in air quotes. Like slavery is legal in Harry Potter. Well, and that's the other thing too. Like, yes. There is a lot of really messed up implications in this universe and in this story. Like, the books go so much further into, like, the whole how slavery works and house elves and stuff like that in further installments. Like, Dobby appears in every single book from here on out, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if every single, but I definitely know he reappears in the fourth one, which, oh boy... Yeah, but what happens in this universe is basically, it, it's explained away as not only are house elves slaves, but they're better off as slaves. If they're not, if they're free, then they go crazy and, like, become alcoholics. Oh my god, yes. People like to talk about, oh, they cut out so much good stuff in the Harry Potter movies. And I mean, that's true. There's some good stuff they got rid of. They also got rid of the spew plot line, where in the fourth yeah. book, Hermione becomes really upset about the whole slavery thing and like tries to convince Hogwarts to flee all of their slaves that work there and it's like haha look at this dumb feminist get off your soapbox Lisa Simpson the slaves want to be slaves which is some Uncle Tom Riddle's cabin ass bullshit oh yeah it's really uncomfortable if you think about it and I mean Harry Potter it does show Things that are messed up in that society, like the whole muggle-born discrimination thing, to have them, this is the bad thing that needs to be fixed. But, like, the slavery in Harry Potter, that's not fixed by the end of the series. Like, I'm pretty sure one of the last lines before the epilogue in book seven is Harry ordering his slave. Harry gets a slave later in the series, ordering his slave to, like, bring him tea. Like, they never really get rid of the whole slavery thing. No. And it's weird. They never try and abolish slavery. All the main characters want is people to be nicer to their slaves because the slaves, well, they deserve to be enchanted. Oh, God. Yeah, so Dobby the Slave uh, in a really messed up part of the universe that, thank God, the movies didn't go too much into. Dobby appears in Harry Potter's room and warns him to not go back to Hogwarts because great danger is approaching. Harry offers him to sit down. Dobby starts beating himself because he's not used to good things happening to him. Earlier in the movie, Harry revealed that Ron and Hermione had not been writing him mm -hmm. over the summer as they promised they would. But then Dobby reveals that they have been writing them, but he's been stealing the letters before they get to Harry in order to discourage him from going back to Hogwarts to be with his friends. Harry chases Dobby down the stairs. Dobby uses his magic to lift the cake that the Dursleys made for Vernon's clients and smashes it onto the client's wife's head, which embarrasses him and ruins Vernon's chance at getting the biggest sale or whatever. So Harry is grounded, not allowed to go back to school, and Dobby disappears. Yay. And Vernon puts bars on Harry's window because... Here's the thing about the Dursleys. It's not just that they're, like, really abusive to Harry. Yeah. They go out of their way 
to make work for themselves. Like in the first one, they move to a deserted island so Harry can't go away to boarding school. And then this one, they don't want him to leave. Like, I can't... Okay, you hate your nephew. Just let... Don't, why do you want to keep him here? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's one of the big things that always struck me is it's like, why do you keep him around? Like I said, why would Harry want to go back? But why would the Dursleys even want him back? Like, no, you're the fucking wizarding world's problem. Get out of get out of here, man. So late at night after the bars are put up, Harry is woken up to a flying car outside his bedroom. It's Ron and his older brothers, Fred and George, in a flying car who have come to save him and take him away to Hogwarts. And they, like, tie the car to the bars on the window and pull them off. And, like, Harry climbs into the car and Vernon Dursley slips out and probably breaks his leg or something, trying to keep Harry from leaving. Harry escapes. They fly back to the Weasleys' home where Mrs. Weasley berates the kids but praises Harry. She's like, you're grounded. You better hope that I don't put bars on your window. Oh, but of course I don't blame you, Harry. Let's have some breakfast. I love Julie Walters as Molly Weasley. She's perfect in the role and continues to be perfect as the series goes on. Yeah, I was also a fan of the dad. Yeah, yeah. Arthur Weasley is great. I really like Arthur as a character. Just this absent-minded, really interested in muggle stuff, weirdo father who also, like... Don't mess with him. He is a very principled, kind man who will fight to protect his family. The Weasleys are great. I like the Weasleys. Their house, by the way, looks awesome. It's filled with all these magic knickknacks, like a clock that tracks where people are and knitting needles that sew by themselves. Yeah, dishes that wash themselves. Yeah, which, which would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm terrible about doing my dishes, as Riley knows. Yeah. Ooh, also, while they're at the Weasleys, Harry briefly meets Ron's younger sister, Ginny, who has a crush on him. She doesn't get many lines in this film, which is fine. I mean, it's not like she's important. No, she doesn't really get many lines until Half-Blood Prince, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, she gets a bit more play in, like, 4 and 5, but, like, she's not actually, like, an important character until Harry decides he wants to tap that. God, I mean, you're not wrong, but... Weird way to phrase it. But yeah, 11-year-old girl have crush on Harry Potter. They're going to get married in the epilogue spoilers. Mm -hmm. But whatever. Ginny is in the background of a few scenes, doesn't have lines, which is fine, though. Because, again, she's not relevant to this movie at all. No, she really isn't. The Weasleys and Harry get their letters getting accepted into Hogwarts for the next year. Uh, They also get their book lists. So they decide to go to Diagon Alley via flu powder. So what they do is they go into their fireplace with magic powder. They shout the name of wherever they want to go. They throw the fire down. They're erupted into flames and teleported to a fireplace near where they're at. Yeah, I can see no way that would ever go wrong. No, and, and that's the thing. It's just like, I get that this is a magic world and we got to find fun, new, creative ways for transportation in this. But there's some bizarre transportation methods in the Harry Potter universe. And it's weird. There's so many. There's apparition. There's port keys. There's broomsticks. There's enchanted vehicles like... Yeah. The Weasley's car or the bus in the third one. Like, you can. Wizards can teleport. Why do they need this stupid chimney thing? And it sucks because if you look, the Weasleys and Harry, they're like covered in dirt and soot from the fire throughout the rest of that next few scenes. 
And it's like, okay, that doesn't seem like it's a very good means of transportation if you're just going to come out covered in dirt. Also, later on, it's like in uh, the Deathly Hallows, it was like they have to stand in toilets and then flush. Oh, right. Like, and I'm not saying at the end of the day, it's it's fun and magical, but like there's so many different transportation methods and a lot of them are fucking weird. Yeah. So Harry, he just goes, blah, 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 like doesn't pronounce it right at all. And he ends up in some random house. He walks around the creepy streets of Nocturne Alley, which is the evil version of Diagon Alley right next to it. But it's fine. He runs into Hagrid, who like brings him to the Weasleys. Run into Hermione, it's fine. Yeah. One thing that I thought was a pretty fun with this movie is just the idea that Hagrid has improved as a liar. Like, his whole thing in the first movie is that whenever he was not supposed to tell someone, the kid, something, he would just say it, but then regret saying it afterwards. He'd be like, should not yeah, have said Yeah, it's that. like, hey, so who made the Philosopher's Stone? Oh, whoa, 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 I'm not allowed to tell you anything about Nicholas Flamel. Ah, shit, I'm fired. Yeah. But Hagrid has improved as a liar. Yeah. Also, he's just in the scary, spooky part of town, and it's like, ooh, it's ominous. What's he up to there? Is Hagrid possibly evil? And not to get ahead of ourselves, no, he's just shopping, in hindsight. Like, he's allowed to shop without being portrayed as evil soundtrack of this movie. Yeah, Hagrid finds Harry, saves him from the creepy people in Nocturne Alley, takes him to the bookstore where Hermione and the Weasleys are waiting, and conveniently, all this movie's major players are in this one scene. Ron, Harry, Hermione, oh, shit, the Weasleys, right. Malfoy, Malfoy's dad, who I will get to him in a second, Gilderoy, Lockhart, uh, Hagrid, like... So many important people are just conveniently in this one bookshop in the middle of Diagon Alley. Like, the hell? I mean, narrative simplicity, even if it's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. I don't I'm know. just saying it's it's funny how convenient it is. But we're introduced to Gilderoy Lockhart, played brilliantly, I thought, by Kenneth Branagh, the guy who directed Thor that we've reviewed a couple weeks ago. Gilderoy Lockhart is like a famous author, explorer, philanthropist. Like, he's a celebrity who, like, has tons of books about how he braved these giant quests and defeated these monsters, and he's just basically a pretty boy. Yeah, and he's so smarmy. Like, he's ridiculously arrogant and self-centered, and Kenneth Branagh captures it perfectly. Every scene he's in, you want someone to smack Gilderoy Lockhart, especially when the movie goes on further and you realize that Gilderoy Lockhart is full of shit. He's just some random loser. Yeah. Oh, God, he's awful. Also, speaking of people who are awful, we meet Malfoy's dad, which is just Malfoy, but a grown-up and somehow more awful, played by Jason Isaacs. Yeah. And... Jason Isaacs does a wonderful job just being this evil, racist, rich dude. Holy shit is this man just evil. Like, I watched this movie a lot as a kid. I read the books as a kid. I know this story. But holy shit, like, Lucius Malfoy is the villain of this movie, I think. Like, the very first scene he's in... He grabs a 12-year-old boy, pulls him in closer to him, and with the snake handle on his cane, pushes back his hair to look at the disfigurement on that child's head, then starts bragging about how great 
the man that killed that kid's parents and gave him that scar is. It started belittling a bunch of children in front of their parents in public. Then when the dad came over, started belittling him and started spewing a bunch of Nazi propaganda. Holy shit, was this man just awful. Yeah, J.K. Rowling exceeds at making characters you just hate. Dolores Umbridge, Lucius Malfoy, J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Oh, God. So, it's revealed that Gilderoy Lockhart is the new defense against the Dark Arts teacher. He's replacing Quirrell, who Harry turned to dust at the end of the last movie. Yay! This guy's going to teach children! Mm-hmm. So, speaking of how Dumbledore's, like, the worst, which is a common theme in this series, what the hell was he doing hiring Lockhart to teach these children? Yeah, well, that's the thing they explored in the books. I'm pretty sure it was, like, either five or six that it explained Harry's inner monologue where he's like every single defense against the dark arts teacher except for Lupin has just been shit <laughs> like or it, they've ended up being shit for one reason or another it's just funny the first one he has Voldemort the magical Hitler on the back of his head then this one is just a fake pretty boy with no skills whatsoever they get worse as the series goes on Speaking of Hogwarts hiring Lockhart, I actually kept a tally and wrote down a list. A list of all the things in this movie that will kill the students at Hogwarts. Oh yes, getting back to our favorite game when we do Harry Potter movies, Hogwarts is a death trap. We've already talked about Quidditch and detention in the murder forest. This book gives us some new cool ones though. Yep. To go down the list real quick, spoilers, I mean, this entire movie is being spoiled for you, so whatever. It came out 18 years ago. Move on, seriously. But (laughs) the list reads as follows. Incompetent teachers that disfigure and set loose monsters on the students. A giant murderous tree just on the grounds, you know, just, just planted there, middle of the grounds, kids walking past. A sealed chamber below the school that when opened will unleash a monster that will commit genocide. A very stupid school sport called Quidditch, obviously. An entire house of students in the school that grow up to be Nazis. The school teaches them spells that produce living venomous snakes that students will use surrounded by students and almost attack them. Open flames in the corridors. And now that I think about it, Just the corridors just have open flames by them. Honestly, that's probably the most safe thing at Hogwarts. Let's be real. Another thing, an army of giant carnivorous talking spiders in the middle of the forest right next to the school. A giant kaiju snake. A headmaster that gives 12-year-olds weapons to fight said kaiju snake. And a psycho-Nazi parent perfectly willing to kill children in front of the headmaster's dormitories what the fuck yeah and if we're to be believed like no one ever dies at hogwarts and i don't know they have really good healing magic i guess but every time a student dies it's a big deal when it happens in the backstory and when it happens in the fourth book and when it happens many 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 times in the seventh (laughs) but god damn this school is dangerous yeah yeah it's terrible Although, like we said last time, a lot of the reason the students keep almost dying is because they're all suicidally stupid. And to get into that, Harry and Ron try and go through platform nine and three quarters to get to Hogwarts. 
but it doesn't work. So naturally, they just wait for Ron's parents. Never mind, they steal Arthur's magic flying car and decide to fly it to Hogwarts. Yeah. And they just fly at ground level on the train tracks and almost get hit by the train. And Harry almost falls out of the car. And they crash into the murder tree we talked about and the car gets smashed. Yep. And then... Oh, (laughs) Harry and Ron, why is it always you three? Because you three don't have a sense of self-preservation. And I loved after the Whomping Willow, like, beats their ass and they drive away to safety. Love that the car just ejects their luggage and says, fuck you idiots, I'm out of here. And just drives away. It's like, fuck this shit, I'm out. I don't know. Is that car sentient? Because it on several occasions does stuff like that, but they never say that it's a living car, just that it has a fly button. It's weird. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The car drives into the woods. Maybe we'll see it again. Maybe. I don't know. But Harry and Ron are at Hogwarts now. They almost get expelled because they expose magic to the public by flying a car through London. And muggles aren't allowed to know about magic because reasons. I don't know. But they don't get expelled. They just get detention. Woohoo. Welcome to Hogwarts. Now into the standard Harry Potter short scenes that are tied together, just showing their school life. They go to Herbology, where they're growing living baby plants. Mandrakes. Like living plant babies that scream loud enough to kill people. Which, why? I mean, it's convenient because turns out they produce a drop that can be used to fix the bad guy's plan, but... Foreshadowing. Why are you growing plants that if you don't have your earmuffs tight enough will put your students in a coma? This school's a death trap. Oh yeah, that too. I forgot to say, I forgot to mention that. I I always thought it was funny. Ever since a kid, I always thought it was hilarious. That scene where Neville passes out and the teacher's just like, eh, just leave him there. Oh, God. I always thought it was so funny. Poor Neville. But yeah, in this scene, we conveniently learn that these plants, once aged well, they can be used to cure petrification. I think that's the word. Cure people who have been petrified. Yeah. There is a, a line that I thought was kind of clever from Hagrid that he said later on in the movie. I think he said, as soon as their acne clears up, she's going to use them to create the potion. Which I thought that that was a pretty interesting thing because like those plants, he's implying that they're currently teenagers And once their acne clears up and they're old enough, they can be used to create the potion to cure everybody. Which, I don't know, I thought that was a really clever line. And I thought it was interesting they saved it for Hagrid. Yeah. Also, more Quidditch! Yay! Draco Malfoy is on the other team now. So rivalry. And he's better than Harry because he bought a faster broom. And Quidditch is pay to win, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, Malfoy is the new Slytherin seeker. He's the new rival to Harry. He calls Hermione a mudblood. Ron tries cursing him, but Ron broke his wand earlier in the movie in the Whomping Willow. But he taped it back together, but he didn't do a good enough job, so all of his spells backfire. So he starts vomiting up slugs. Harry and the audience get to learn about the idea of a mudblood. It's basically a derogatory term for someone who's not- Malfoy shouts the N-word in the middle of sports ball practice. Yeah. You know, I thought that was a pretty sweet scene. Hagrid was there for them. They were all comforting Hermione. We learned more about this, a very interesting part of the Harry Potter universe, the idea that racism is a thing or prejudice is a thing and prejudice exists in 
in in this form in the same movie where slavery is introduced and justified but you know <laughs> yeah and that's that's my big thing about harry potter in general it's introduced in the second movie that a lot of wizards like the malfoys are obsessed with blood purity wizards who are born from pure blood families as opposed to those filthy half-bloods who have one wizard parent and one muggle parent or god forbid mudbloods who have two muggle parents but have like recessive genes of magic it's a long complicated thing yeah but here's the thing it's cool that they go for a like racism is bad message in the harry potter series but also they don't yeah it's this very specific racism is bad when it's towards this one group of people like the series portrays being mean to mudbloods as being horrible. And it is. But also, wizards own slaves. And the books are filled with these other races, like fantasy-type races, like elves and goblins and giants that are just treated different. Yeah. And usually uses joke characters. And it's really weird. And I don't think it works as well as it would like, yeah. you know? Yeah. no. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, in Blazing Saddles, that scene when the racist white townsfolk team up with the black laborers towards the end, and they say, fine, we'll work together, but no Irishmen! That's what this movie is! <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, it's an interesting idea in concept, but the execution has a bit to be desired. Yeah, also... They're humans, like, not just fancy race, but humans who don't have magic are super discriminated against and segregated. Yeah. I appreciate that it tries to go for a good Aesop, but it really does stumble. Yeah. But whatever. While Harry's doing some of his detention with Lockhart, he hears strange whispering, and he walks out into the hall to find a wall just covered in bloody letters that say the chamber of secrets has been opened and there's a cat like petrified Filch's like cat. the janitor's cat is there like petrified just stuck to the wall how much blood can cats lose without dying by the way because there was a lot of blood used to write that according to this movie a lot yeah, after Gilderoy Lockhart unleashes the pixies on the 12-year-old children. Oh, yes, we forgot that. Gilderoy Lockhart's teaching style is just let monster loose in the classroom, then run away. Let the 12-year-olds deal with it. Harry finds out that the Chamber of Secrets is open. And what's the Chamber of Secrets? Oh, it's where the guy who founded the school, who was really, really evil and obsessed with snakes hit a giant monster that could be unleashed to kill all the muggle-born students. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. <laughs> there is a pretty creepy undertone to this movie. Like, just the idea that there's a monster just lurking around where no one can see, and it's, like, literally turning people to stone. And there's, like, messages written in blood everywhere. Harry is the only one who can hear these ominous voices. There's some really creepy parts to this movie. Yeah, I will say... Yeah? I think this movie is overall worse than the Sorcerer's Stone, but I will say, this movie is very creepy when it wants to, and it does work. It's helped along by the music and set design, yes. and it overall works. 
So now that there's a giant snake petrifying everyone, it ends up throughout the movie. We're not going to dwell on it, but we keep getting small scenes of, oh, this person got caught. It takes away like two muggle-born students, nearly headless Nick, who still got fifth billing, (laughs) and the cat before it got someone we care about. Right, yeah. But because there's this spooky monster going around petrifying everyone... Lockhart and Snape start the dueling club, where the students can learn to fight, which, okay. Lockhart's completely incompetent, and Snake disarms him, and then Harry gets to duel Malfoy. Malfoy tries to murder Harry because he's a little shit, and summons a snake, and Harry talks to it, which is bad, because only the heir of Slytherin who can open the Chamber of Secrets can talk to snakes. It's revealed that Harry's a parcel tongue, but he didn't even realize he was talking to the snake. But after he does, he realizes, oh yeah, I kind of set a python loose on my 10-year-old cousin last year a little bit. I mean, he had a cousin. Yeah, he really did. But it's from that moment on, after him talking to a snake and him being found by the message written in blood with Filch's cat, everybody starts to suspect that Harry is the one responsible for all these killings. Or not all these killings, not all these killings, all these attacks. Yeah, and I mean, Harry doesn't make it easy on himself. He just, like, three different occasions just stumbles onto the crime scene because he heard the whispering that no one else can hear. Like, come on, dude, if you're going to... I just killed someone. Don't go to the body! They already suspect you. Whatever. Right, that was my thing. It's like, why are you still going towards it? It's saying kill. I mean, because... Because he's heroic and wants to save people. Like, that just—it's just this. There's a voice, a giant monster on the loose, and you go towards it. Like for nothing else, you know. No self-preservation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. After two times, it's like every time you follow that voice, like you're gonna be found by a petrified body, and everyone's gonna suspect that you're the one responsible for it. Then don't follow it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe don't follow the ominous voice that only you can hear. That's saying, "Kill, kill, kill." Maybe, I don't know, walk the other way. Is is that so hard to ask? Huh? Potter, the boy who lived? Huh? Yeah, yeah. no wonder they call you the boy who lived, because you're a fucking idiot. He's trying to kill himself every two seconds. So, after all this dark stuff, you know what it's time for? More Quidditch! Yay! It... I don't know. Yeah. I feel like this movie's greatest problem is... It's way too similar in just things that happen and how it's shot to the first one. Yeah. Like, I feel the first two are the most similar to each other of any Harry Potter movies. It has the same structure. Something mysterious going on with Hogwarts. Here's some Quidditch scenes. At the end, you go into the basement of the school because Dumbledore isn't around. Like, it reuses a lot from the first one and just feels, I don't know, kind of... Lazy. I mean, the Harry Potter series in general is formulaic, but from the third one on, they started at least being more creative with the formula. Like, the climax of the third one is really interesting, but this one, it's a lot of the same. Yeah. And once again, during Quidditch, someone does magic to try and kill Harry Potter. I feel like they should stop letting him do Quidditch, or at the very least, start looking out for people who want to murder Harry Potter during Quidditch. Yeah, I thought this Quidditch scene kind of felt a little out of place, just because it was like, oh yeah, we need to have a Quidditch scene in every movie, so, you know, that's what we're gonna do. Oh my god, he gets attacked during the third movie's Quidditch scene, doesn't he? Yeah, by the Dementors. Why do you keep doing this? (sighs) Whatever. 
he catches the snitch, but he breaks his arm because the balls are enchanted and attacking him. And then Walker shows up and he's like, Oh, don't worry. I know how to fix broken bones. And Harry just looks at him and says, No, please, not you. And he's like, Ah, oh, whatever. Magic. Oops. I got rid of all the bones in your arm and it's floppy and gross. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing about Lockhart. It's never explained, it's implied, but it's never explained. It's confirmed in Pottermore. Dumbledore, very obviously, he knows that Lockhart's full of shit, and he hired him so he could expose him. And, I mean, cool, but you're just using your students as guinea pigs, dude. They deserve a good education. Also, I mean, cool, you've exposed him. He just took away Harry Potter's arm bones. Now fire him. Because he's actively endangering your students. Well, I mean, it's not like Dumbledore is a stranger to using children as a pawns to his own schemes. But I will say, in that scene, it occurred to me, I, th- I do think that the acting among the children, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, Rupert Grant, I do think the three of them have improved. I thought in the first one, they were all, they were all fine. I thought Daniel Radcliffe was the weakest. But in this movie, I still have the same thoughts. I do think Emma Watson is the best of the three, but they all have improved as actors as they grow older. They've all improved a little bit, but also they're all a little bit older now, so their voices keep cracking. Ron's voice cracks so many times in this movie. But the reason why I bring it up, the acting in this scene, is because I really wasn't a fan of how Daniel Radcliffe sold this one scene where he's like, his arm is broken. And right before Lockhart took the bones away, he was just like, "Ah, I I think my arm is broken. I'm like, dude, breaking your arm is fucking painful. And maybe that was a directing thing, but I don't know. It's just, I don't think he, in this scene, sold the proper emotion. But it was overshadowed by the fact that we saw a fucking arm with no bones in it being bent back oh god it's so gross really good special effects yes. absolutely disgusting yeah harry goes to the uh, hospital ward where he's given medicine that is going to help him regrow his bones that night he hears the voice again he hears the ominous voice talking about killing people and then dobby visits him again basically saying i told you not to come here that's why i prevented you from getting onto the platform nine and three quarters that's why i sent the bludger after you to kill you Dobby! Come on, dude. (laughs) I appreciate the effort, but please stop. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Like, he injured Harry Potter so many times. It's just so fucking stupid. I don't know, but... So, Team Harry realizes that to exonerate Harry and, you know, stop all the people being petrified, we should figure out who the real heir of Slytherin is. It's probably fucking Malfoy. Right, because Because in that scene... He's so suspicious. Yeah, well, because in that same scene where Dobby told him, he's like, yeah, history's going to repeat itself. And Harry's like, oh, what, you mean the chamber's been open before? And then Dobby leaves just as the teachers are bringing in that kid with the camera. Basically, he's been petrified by the monster. And he overhears Dumbledore saying the Chamber of Secrets has been opened again. And we need to keep everyone safe. So now they know... The chamber is open. It's been open before. Thus starts the mystery as to what's going on with the chamber, who's opening it, what's what's going on. Probably Draco, because he's suspicious. Yeah. But how can we get find out if Draco knows? I know. Let's just go to the library. Last time we did a Harry Potter movie, we made fun of the fact that they just have an unguarded section full of all the evil books. The Polyjuice Potion recipe is just... It's on a normal shelf. Yeah. 
I mean, Hermione said they were going to be breaking over 50 school rules, but it's just kind of there. Yeah, and I mean, they don't show it. In the books, they had to, like, steal all the ingredients from Snape, but yeah, they have a book on how to make shape-shifting potion. Ooh, that... I feel like there are many, many ways that could go wrong if you put it in the hands of teenagers. Whatever. They weren't even they teenagers, they tweens. <laughs> Fair enough. They That's threw a shape-shifting potion in an abandoned girl's bathroom, which is haunted by this ghost named Moaning Myrtle. She'll be important later. Yeah. And they knock out Crab and Goyle, Malfoy's minions, and they all take some hair so that they can sneak into the Slytherin dorms. This movie has a lot of CGI that's gross, but good for the era. Yeah. Of, like, their skin bubbling as they turn into Crab and Goyle. Except Hermione didn't grab hair from a person by mistake. She tried to get a Slytherin girl's hair. But, oops, that girl owns a cat. So Hermione becomes a furry. Yeah. The transformation scene, we watch Harry transform into Goyle, one of Malfoy's friends. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't hold up super well, but it's a hell of a lot better than the face transformation scene in Fan Stick. I will tell you that. I haven't even seen that movie in years. And I don't plan to, but all I remember was that it was bad. Harry and Ron turn into Crab and Goyle, go down to the Slytherin common area. They talk with Malfoy, who's even a little shit to his friends because he's just an asshole. He's the worst. They find out that Malfoy's not responsible, and Malfoy tells them that his father told him that 50 years earlier, the chamber was opened and a mudblood died, but Malfoy says that he wishes that Hermione is the one that dies this time. Which, that's... that. Okay, that's a little far. I get, like... Having villains, and I get kids can be cruel and mean and shit, but, like, genuinely wishing death on someone you bully, like, that is borderline sociopathic. That, no, that's not even borderline sociopathic. Malfoy would be a serial killer. Like, I know towards the end he has a bit of a redemption arc. A very slight one. Very slight. But, no, he he's a serial killer. He's just, like, two murders away from being a serial killer. All he's got to go through is one bad day. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's funny, talking about Draco, the Harry Potter fandom, it was one of the first really big online fandoms, and so many people liked Draco and tried to portray him as more sympathetic than he is. No, throughout all of canon, he's just awful. Yeah. He's never good. At best, he's less bad in that he doesn't want to murder someone in the sixth. And I mean, in the cursed child, he gets redeemed. But whatever, that place sucks. Whatever. Harry is sent to Dumbledore's office because he's caught at the scene of the crime with nearly headless Nick and one of his classmates. And he's sent to Dumbledore's office where he meets Dumbledore's phoenix, Fox. And Dumbledore tells him that he does not believe that Harry's involved in the Chamber of Secrets. Well, yada, yada, yada. That'll come in handy later. Also in that scene was, I thought, a pretty awkward or out-of-place exchange between Harry and the Sorting Hat. Like, I feel like this movie tries to be very, very faithful to the books. And because it is. The first two are very faithful to the novels. The first one has one chapter and maybe some some of the fat trimmed off. The second one, maybe a chapter and a half. It, it just as the books go on, more and more gets cut for the movies. 
which has its ups and downs. Later on, they give you more time to focus on the main three and the main story, but cutting out all that fat, focusing up the narrative to focus on the main three, but you're also cutting out a lot of the important stuff with the other side characters. So that, spoiler alert, when other characters die, some of their deaths in the films don't have the same impact they did in the books. They started cutting out more and more with the benefit of giving you more time to know and love Harry, Hermione, and Ron, but also like some of the other very important characters in this story, they just kind of get brushed to the side. Although I will say this one, maybe it could have used some cutting of things because this is the longest Harry Potter movie. And like we said, it's very similar to the first one. I Kind of got bored at parts of this one, you know? Yeah. There was an interaction when Harry goes into Dumbledore's office, he meets up with the sorting hat. And out of nowhere, he just, for some reason, asks him, like, I was wondering if you made the right decision putting me in Gryffindor. Because, like, Harry's thinking he's heir of Slytherin as well. Right. Yeah, but that's not super well explained in the movie, in that scene, you know? He just kind of meets the sorting hat and is like, oh, here's this question, because it happened in the book. And in the book, it was very well explained. Granted, with the book, it's the added advantage of having Harry's inner monologue. But still, it's just kind of like, I don't know, I felt like it was a little out of place in that I think they could have found a way to, like, incorporate it better. I suppose. The reason why I bring it up is like there's stuff like this that could have and probably should have been cut for the sake of time and also keeping the audiences interested. Another thing, right as they find out that Malfoy is not responsible for opening the Chamber of Secrets, they start transforming back to their normal selves. They find Hermione. And I will say, I do agree with you. I do think that the first one is the stronger of the two films. But from a story perspective, I will say both movies are in a way, mysteries. They introduce a mystery element into the story. Honestly, that's the Harry Potter series in general. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. They try to be mysteries. They aren't the best oh, mysteries, no. but they do try for Oh, that. no, I, and I'll get into that. But it's like with this one, they actually, you know, try to do some investigating. They're like, okay, who's opening the Chamber of Secrets? And they're like, oh, we think it's Malfoy because he's a piece of shit. And then they investigate him for a little while. Then they find out he's not really it. But then they even start investigating Hagrid, one of their friends. And it's like, oh, shit, is he going to be the bad guy? And no, 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 he's he's really not going to be. I don't know. I I, I would say that the the pacing of this movie is very, very off. Just uh, not not a whole lot of things have time to, like, settle in and have an impact, you know? So a lot of these plots, they're just kind of like in one scene. Oh, yeah, we think Malfoy's doing it. And then, like, maybe a couple scenes later, they're like, oh, yeah, no, he's not a part of it. Oh, we think Hagrid's a part of it. And then, like, two scenes later, oh, no, Hagrid's not a part of it. And it's like, I don't know, it was just very rushed. Though I will say, I do prefer that investigation over the kids in the first one just being like, oh, yeah, I don't know. We assume Snape is doing all of it because he was mean to us. So you briefly touched on it. They suspect Hagrid. Why do they suspect Hagrid? Well, you see, Harry finds this magic diary that, like, when you write in it, the text disappears, and then the diary talks to him. The diary is so obviously cursed. This is a cursed artifact. Throw it in a fire, man. Do not interact with this. Whatever. Harry's a dumbass. Harry asks, hey, do you know who opened the Chamber of Secrets? And the diary sucks him in, and he sees a flashback. 
of 50 years ago when a student named Tom Riddle exposed that Hagrid opened the Chamber of Secrets and killed Moaning Myrtle. Mm -hmm. With a giant spider. Yeah, he had a pet giant spider, but I mean, that's very clearly not Salazar Slytherin's monster <laughs> from the Chamber of Secrets because it's a snake. Slytherin's monster is a snake because he's named Slytherin, whatever. Harry can speak to snakes. So they expelled Hagrid 50 years ago because they thought he killed Moaning Myrtle. And then right after Harry and Ron find this out, they arrest Hagrid and take him off to Azkaban, the torture hell prison that we get better introduced to in the third one. And here's the thing. Do they not have trials in Harry Potter? I mean, they show them in the fourth, but they just send Hagrid there without a trial. Also, there's mind-reading magic and truth serum in these books. So, like, I mean, you could have done an interrogation to make sure Hagrid was guilty before you sent him to the hell prism. Just saying. Yeah, again, there's just little stuff in these movies, in these books, that are, like, really messed up, if you think about it. The implications of what this means for the universe. It's, like, it's so bizarre. The wizarding world was authoritarian far before Voldemort came along. And it kind of still is that even after the series ends and Hermione takes over. There are so many human rights problems in this series. It's really absurd. Oh, we missed something. Hermione gets petrified, which is bad because she's the only smart one in the trio. They lost all of the group's intelligence. She kept all the brain cells. Also, so, like, a bunch of students get petrified, and they're like, ah, it's fine, we're growing these mandrakes that we can use to make a draught that will cure them. Uh, hey, they're petrified for months? Couldn't you buy some? I mean, maybe it's really rare, but... These are children who are comatose for months. Like, buy the damn potion! There's gotta be a Walmart around Hogwarts, you think? Just pop down to your local Walmart, get some Mandrake potion. Get these kids out of a coma for an entire fucking year. Where are their parents? Huh? Do you think they even told Hermione's parents? Oh, probably not. Most definitely not. Like, Hermione gets back? I was in a coma for the entire year. What? 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 Well, for half the year, but still. After Hermione's petrified, they go to Hagrid's to confront him about the whole you open the Chamber of Secrets thing. They see Hagrid get taken away by Lucius Malfoy, and Hagrid tells them, rather obviously, Hey, go into the woods! Follow the spiders! So they follow the spiders. Also, Lucius Malfoy gets Dumbledore fired. Right, right. He's the worst. Although, yeah. I mean, Dumbledore should be fired for this, but... He's still a dick. Yeah, he is just despicable. But yeah, yeah, Harry and Ron go into the forest to follow the spiders. And when they reach their destination, they find a gigantic tarantula, like the size of a fucking bus, living in the middle of the forest, who tells him that Hagrid is not the one that opened the chamber. The spider, named Aragorn, is not the monster that's doing all of this. And he refuses to even talk about what the monster's name is. And then he tells his children to eat the kids. Yeah. Don't worry, though. 
Harry and Ron are saved by the movie's true hero, the car. The Ford Angela drives back and it saves them. And then it drives away again. Who is it going to save now? We may never know. They're going to make a prequel trilogy about his early life and how he became the hero he is. Until he works up to his final battle with Lucius Malfoy. I don't know, I'm done with this joke. So Harry and Ron, they find a note in Hermione's hand that she ripped out of a book before she was petrified that says, The monster's a giant snake that's going through the pipes. Oh, wait. The door to the Chamber of Secrets is probably in the bathroom where Myrtle was killed. Oh, let's tell this information to the teachers so they can fight the monster. Nope. Nope, we'll fight it ourselves. Because the monster has kidnapped Ginny Weasley. Gasp. That scene in particular, well, A, I think it's really stupid that Hermione was petrified for God knows how long, and none of the highly qualified teachers or medical staff thought to look at, oh, what's in her hand? Oh, it's a piece of paper that answers everything. I just realized, she's got to have the worst hand cramp when she gets out of the coma. Oh yeah, most definitely. After reading that paper and finding out that it's a basilisk, a giant snake, all the students are called to go back to their dormitories, but Ron and Harry decide to follow the teachers, where they find a very ominous message that creeped me out when I rewatched it. I was like, god damn, the message written in blood reads... Her skeleton will lie in the chamber forever. Damn. I am 21. I was freaked out by that. I was like, God damn. And by her, it's Ron's 11-year-old sister. That's horrible. And naturally, McGonagall, who's acting as principal, assigns the most competent man to go save Ginny. She sends Lockhart. Why would you send Lockhart? You know he's an idiot. Send Snape. Do it yourself. Oh, God, Ginny's going to die because you sent Lockhart. Snape Snape was trying to, like, he suggested Lockhart. He was like, well, you said you'd known all along where the entrance to the chamber is, so you can go down there and save her. Yeah, well, Snape's a dick who would let one of his students die if it would allow him to one-up Lockhart. But McGonagall, you're smarter than this, Minerva. Harry and Ron go to tell Lockhart that they know it's a basilisk, and they find out that, oh shit, Lockhart's lying about himself being cool, which is something that the audience already knew. The audience already knew that Lockhart was full of shit. So Harry and Ron, naturally, they go and get McGonagall's. JK, they decide to go to the chamber themselves, and they bring Lockhart along as a hostage for some reason. It did occur to me, something I really realized that for some reason I had no idea why it went over my head for so many years. The idea that the entrance to the chamber that releases the snake is in the girl's bathroom, which I just think it's crazy because I thought that J.K. Rowling hated phallic-shaped objects in a girl's bathroom. Oh. <laughs> but um, yeah. J.K. Rowling's an asshole. Yeah. Actually, something we missed while we were talking about the basilisk. The basilisk, it's supposed to kill anyone who looks at it. How did all these people survive? Well, conveniently, they all only saw reflections of it. Like Hermione had a mirror. Colin had his camera. What's-his-face looked at it through the water. How convenient. Someone looked at it through nearly headless Nick. And Nick can't die because he's already dead. So he just got petrified. Wait, how did they give nearly headless Nick the fix... 
paralysis potion. So anyway, the next scene, <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. The basilisk sucks at killing people. It has teeth. You you can yeah. eat them. Harry, Ron, and Lockhart descend into the Chamber of Secrets. And Lockhart steals Ron's wand and tries to use it to erase Harry and Ron's memory of all of the bad things that he's done. But it backfires because it's a broken wand. Side note, they really should have given Ron a working wand because he's endangering himself and others with that broken wand. Yeah. Whatever. Lockhart accidentally erases his own memory and causes a cave-in that separates Harry from the others. So now Harry has to go in alone. And can I say something? This is a common thing in the series, but Ron just gets sidelined and treated as a sidekick so much. I feel like rescuing his little sister from the killer snake that is controlled by a guy who is ideologically completely against him who petrified his girlfriend. I feel like if Ron was ever going to have a chance to be relevant in the climax, this would be it. But now he gets sidelined by a cave-in. Harry continues deeper and deeper into the cave system until he happens upon the Chamber of Secrets. Which looks phenomenal. Yes, much like the last film, the production design and the music too. It's fucking incredible. The Chamber of Secrets looks incredible. The music of him walking into it is outstanding. And as he's walking down the corridor, he sees the passed out body of Ginny Weasley lying in front of a giant statue of the head of Salazar Slytherin, the founder of Slytherin House. And out from the shadows, dun da da da, comes the villain of this story. Tom Riddle, who's the one who owned the diary. And Tom Riddle was a student at Hogwarts like 50 years ago. He was the one that told everyone Hagrid was responsible for opening the chamber. And here he is, hasn't aged a day, in the chamber. Like, what what the hell? And no, no, Harry at no point is like, "What, what the hell are you doing here? You may be wondering, how could Tom still be a teenager and have done all these killings? Well, it's simple. You see... The real culprit all along was Ginny Weasley? What? She had like two lines in this entire film at this point. Oh, she got the diary off screen and it possessed her and made her write things in blood and control the snake. Wow, that was well foreshadowed. What a satisfying twist. There's a lot of parallels to the twist ending of the first one. Like, when it comes to creating a twist ending, you should set it up, but, like, make your audience be like, I never saw that coming. But if you rewatch it or think back to it, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, and that makes sense, too. And this and the first one, it's like, it's setting up, and then out of nowhere, something completely different happens, like, out of left field. What? What? What the hell? Like, that's... Huh? So... Tom Riddle, if the fact that the evil diary ghost was the real bad guy wasn't enough of a twist for you, guess who he is? He's Lord Voldemort. You see, because his full name, Tom Marvolo Riddle, his middle name was never said. That's an anagram for I am Lord Voldemort. Didn't you solve this puzzle that they didn't give you the clues to? Yeah, of course, exactly. Which begs the question, since the real living Lord Voldemort is still out there trying to get his body back, and spoiler alert, he does by the fourth movie, it's like this memory of him. Like, what he was is he's a memory that was enchanted in the 
diary. And it gets explained that he's a Horcrux, he's a chunk of Voldemort's soul in the sixth one, but at this point, he just says, I'm a memory yeah. and a diary. So it's like, it's the memory, he's trying to make himself real. So what's gonna happen when the memory of Tom Riddle meets up with the real Lord Voldemort who came back to life? What's gonna happen then? That's, I don't know, I'd, I'd kind of be interested to see that. They bond. They're bros now. Also, Tom reveals that actually he didn't want to kill all the muggle-born students, even though he targeted them exclusively. He wanted to kill Harry, and he tried to kill Harry by... So anyway, he releases the basilisk, and Harry runs away from it because big spooky snake. Voldemort's pet phoenix, Fox, comes in and blinds the basilisk. Harry outmaneuvers it through the tunnels, does the really, really cliche thing of throw a rock to like, ooh, I'm gonna go chase the sound. Also, Fox brought the sorting hat with him, which Harry pulls a sword out of. Okay. I did I I didn't know that was a thing that could be done with the sorting hat but that's cool and Harry stabs the big snake. Woohoo. Yeah, I will say, like, I saw these movies as a, a lot as a kid. I have a very vivid memory of watching this movie. I had to have been, like, four or five. And my dad was watching it with us. And it got to that part where Harry's on top of the head of the statue of Salazar Slytherin. And he stabs the snake through the brain, which, that was really good practical effects. It's cool. Mixed with CGI. And really good editing. It was really good. But I have a very vivid memory of my father going, Oh, oh, oh my God. When he saw that. I was like four at the time. And I was watching a movie where Harry stabs a snake through the head with a sword. When he did that, Harry got his arm stabbed by one of the basilisk's poisonous fangs. Harry crawls down the statue of Salazar Slytherin, crawls over to Ginny because the poison is about to kill him, grabs Tom Riddle's diary from her hands, takes the basilisk fang that was stuck in his arm, and he stabs the diary over and over again until the memory of Tom Riddle is destroyed and Ginny comes awake. Oh, but Harry's gonna die now because of the poison. Wait! Magic Bird! To the rescue for a third time! Fox is the real hero of this movie. Yeah. Rename this movie to Harry Potter and that time he got saved by a car and a bird. Fox cries on him and magic healing Phoenix tears make him not die. I'd love to see a buddy cop movie between the magic car and the Phoenix because they're the real heroes of this movie. A Phoenix's tears have healing powers, which was set up by Dumbledore earlier in the movie, conveniently. Harry's alright, Ginny's alright, the day is saved, the Basilisk is dead, Tom Riddle is dead, and Fox takes Harry, Ginny, Ron, and Lockhart out of the caves and back to Hogwarts, where they probably have to explain why the hell Lockhart is insane now. But again, getting back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, the implications of this story. An 11-year-old girl was brainwashed by magical Hitler for an entire year, and then, like, oh yeah, yeah, no, send her back to class, you know? Yeah, like, there's some really interesting storytelling that could be told about Ginny in this movie of her slowly being possessed by this dark artifact that pretends to be friendly but really just wants to kill her and steal her life force. But she doesn't appear in the movie! Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
two lines before it's revealed that she's the big bad. Right. It's a dumb twist. And like in the last one, we have a scene where Harry goes to Dumbledore and they discuss everything that's happened. Dumbledore explains that, Harry, you were put in Gryffindor. Because it's Richard Harris and he talks like that. Harry, you were put in Gryffindor because you chose to be there. And that is what makes you different from Tom Riddle. Okay, that's cool. Lucius Malfoy shows up! Ah, shit! Turns out he's Dobby's master. He just beats Dobby with his cane in front of Dumbledore. Because Lucius is the worst. Well, what's interesting, if you looked really closely at the beginning of this movie when Lucius Malfoy is talking to the Weasleys and Harry, you can see he grabs a book from Ginny's cauldron and he puts it back into the cauldron. But if you look, he slid a black book in there as well. That black book was Tom Riddle's diary. Lucius Malfoy set the stage for these events. That's why Dobby knew yeah. all of this was ha gonna happen is because he's the Malfoy's servant. He knew that Malfoy was going to send a fucking magical evil cursed diary to brainwash an 11 year old girl, kill her so that magical Hitler can come back. What the yeah. fuck? Although to be fair, that raises two questions. Number one, so like, does Lucius Malfoy just shout all of his evil plans in the living room while Dobby is listening? And number two, what even was his plan? Like, ooh, I've got this evil diary containing my master's soul. I shall kill Harry Potter by putting it in this random child's backpack. Hopefully this works out. Holy shit, it almost worked out. Yeah. Harry gives the diary back to Lucius, basically telling him, yeah, I know you're behind this. And Lucius gives the diary to Dobby. And then Dobby opens it and sees a sock in it because it stated that house elves, if their masters ever give them clothing, they're free. And now Dobby is a free elf and he teleports Lucius Malfoy away to, unfortunately not to like off a cliff or in a volcano, probably just back home. But he teleports Lucius away because Lucius tries to murder Harry Potter in broad daylight. Yeah, he's about to use the killing curse and Dobby just blasts him 15 feet back. Uh, Malfoy leaves. Harry makes Dobby promise to never save his life again because Dobby's an idiot and he's terrible at it. Dobby will break that promise, but in a really sad way. Oh yes, absolutely. It's the end of the year. Dumbledore announces that all final exams have been canceled. Sucks to be the students who needed those SAT scores to get into college. Yeah, all the kids that were petrified came back. Hagrid came back from Azkaban and everything's all well and good until next year. When someone also tries to commit gen- No, actually, no, not genocide, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, the third one is the only one that doesn't feature Voldemort, actually. It's an off year for Harry. He gets to relax. Though it was, I would argue, the conflict is much better because it's not about this guy who he's destined to fight. It's about the guy who he believes set up all the terrible things in his life. Oh yeah, I think Prisoner of Azkaban is a good contender for the best Harry Potter movie. I don't hate this movie, but just getting to our thoughts on it, or the review portion of the review, <laughs> I think this is probably the weakest Harry Potter movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I do think it's weaker than the first one. I haven't seen any of the Harry Potter movies for years, so once we're done reviewing this series, I can make my assessments there, but... I do think that the green screen, CGI, and even the child actors did improve 
over this one. There were certain elements of the story that I thought were better ideas in, in conception than there were in the first one. The drawbacks of this movie are that the pacing is just really off. And a lot of the events of the story, like in an attempt to try and be faithful to the book, there's so much in this movie that could have been cut out to save up time and arguably focus up the narrative. In comparison to the first one, the first one you felt like, oh yeah, it's, it's a race to the end. The villain is going down there to get the Sorcerer's Stone and the kids need to stop him. There was build up to that. But in this one, it's just kind of like they're walking down a corridor and they overhear that something terrible happened and they decide, oh yeah, we need to prevent it. So instead of the story naturally flowing in that direction, it's just kind of like things happen and oh yeah, let's deal with that. That's all the stuff in the movie. Like there's a section of the movie where the kids are concerned that Hagrid, their friend, is responsible for all of these attacks. It's, it's like maybe... I don't know, how many, 10, 15 minutes of an almost three-hour movie? Yeah. Dobby is a huge part in it. He's in, like, three scenes. Tom Riddle's diary. Harry has Tom Riddle's diary in one scene. Then, like, two scenes later, their room is ripped apart and the diary is stolen. Like, okay, well, that could have been pretty important. I don't know, it's just... I get the idea that you have to be faithful to the novel. And this is how the sequence of events unfolded with the novel. But... When adapting something to the screen, you have to make it work on the big screen. You can't just do it well, like, because, oh, well, that's how it happened in the movie. Well, is that inherently cinematic? Is Does that work told in a cinematic narrative? There's some good ideas, some good stuff. Overall, the movie is very fun, I would say. What emotion it goes for, it does achieve. Like, it's very fun, has a lot of funny moments. Uh, it has a lot of creepy moments, a lot of scary, intense moments. Overall, I would say there's a lot that did improve from the last one, but from a story perspective, there's some pretty big compromising flaws that do make it weaker than the first one, and I would agree with you, it is one of the weaker of this series. You know, Sorcerer's Stone, you gave that an 8. What would you give this one? Uh, probably a 6.5, honestly. I, I, Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably say, nah, you know what, I'll give it a 7. Why not? Yeah, I'll give it a seven. It's good. It's a good movie. It's just, it's not great. Here's my thoughts on this movie. Everything that worked in the first movie worked again. Everything that failed, failed again. It's very similar to the first movie. I don't have a lot of different thoughts on this. I appreciate the creepier tone, but the bloated pacing, the nonsensical ending... It just makes it a little bit worse. It kind of reminds me of when we review Batman Returns, where I was left feeling, yeah, this movie is definitely worse than the first one, but I don't really think it's worse enough to give it a different score. So I'm going to give this one another 8.5. Okay, yeah, so you gave it an 8.5, I gave it a 7. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's just not as good as the other ones. And you know, this was the last Harry Potter movie Chris Columbus directed. But, I mean, I understand. After this, he had to move on to bigger and better things. Like Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And Pixels. Or Pixels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, gotta keep your priorities in line, right? You directed Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire, and then you made Pixels. You fell, man. You fell hard. Yeah. The next film was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who just a few years ago won an Academy Award for his film Roma. The Prisoner of Azkaban is one of, if not my favorite, 
which is interesting because it's following up what is argued by many people to be one of the weakest in the series. The next film would go on to be a very important next step and continuation for the Harry Potter series. But we'll get to that eventually. And, you know, it'll be a few months because next week we're... Oh boy, we're reviewing something fun. We're reviewing Space Jam. Come on and slam, welcome to the jam. This movie, on its poster, it says, starring Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny. You know it's going to be bad, but in, like, a good way. We're reviewing that next week, and it'll be a lot of fun. Riley, where can they find you? You can all find me on YouTube, at Riley Thorpe, where you can check out all of my short films, one of which, Silence of the Karens, just got accepted into the Flix Reps Festival a few weeks ago. And I've entered it into a number of other film festivals, so stay tuned for that. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Riley James Thorpe, where you can check out all my content there. And on my Instagram, I post updates on all new episodes of this show. Though, I will be creating a bunch of social media accounts for this show specifically soon. So, again, stay tuned for that. You can all follow me on Twitter at JarmsCasey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. I post updates on all my ongoing projects. You can find basically everything I've ever done at CaseyJarms.wordpress.com. You can find my short stories there. You can find my indie games there. Uh, I put the first five chapters of one of the books I wrote, Soul Survivor, there because I'm writing a sequel to it, hopefully coming out in the fall. Next episode, as we said, we're going to be doing Space Jam. Assuming we don't accidentally magic ourselves and erase all of our memory. As always, I'm Casey Jarms. And I'm Riley Thorpe. And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to a ladder.